Hello and welcome to the second instalment of the Witness podcast. My name is Jack and I am this year's Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. We are Exeter University's Academic Politics Journal, publishing daily articles on our website, thewitnessexeter.com, written and submitted by members of our academic community. If you'd like to get involved with The Witness, writing articles or getting involved with the team, you can email us at thewitness.exeter at outlook.com or message the Facebook page. This week on the podcast, I sat down with Alfie Carlyle, a law student here at Exeter and the mastermind behind all of the intimidating code behind our website. The theme of our discussion was the interplay between the European Convention on Human Rights and lockdowns. Does the act of locking down a state excessively infringe on the human rights laid down in this treaty? We then debated the potentiality of nefarious ulterior motives behind those advocating for the lifting of lockdown, followed by our takes on what a just and resilient lockdown strategy may look like. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay. Hello everyone, welcome back to the second episode of the Witness podcast. Today I have with me Alfie Carlyle. Alfie, it's nice for you to be with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Alfie, you're coming on today to talk about the human rights law and its implications for our lockdown and all previous lockdowns that we have been experiencing over the past year. But before we kind of jump into it, do you want to just uh, give us a little bit of background and what gives you the kind of intellectual authority to come and tell us these things? Um, sure, yeah. Uh, so I am a second year law student. Um, I've studied um, constitutional administrative law. Um, I've done recently a lot of reading around um, the Human Rights Act, uh, European Convention on Human Rights, and its kind of impact on how our lives have changed so drastically uh, in less than 12 months. Um, as we're recording this, actually now I've just noticed that the um, Health Secretary is about to give another address, you know, perhaps changing the regulations again. Um, so, yeah, uh, as I said, my, my interest kind of stems from what I studied through the course, but this isn't necessarily prescribed, you know, as part of the standard, standard law course because it's such a novel idea. Mm. Well, it's this heretical that we're missing Matt Hancock's address. I mean, we'll have to look at it afterwards, but... Yeah, I'll get on, catch up. <laughs> okay, let's jump into this, Alfie. So let's start with a kind of um, definition of the issue at hand. Can you just tell us, to your knowledge, Human Rights Act, European human rights, and what constitutes them, what kind of institutions surround them, and just a frame the issue for us. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so in terms of the, the institutions, um, it, it, it primarily is um, the UK government and parliament. So the European Convention on Human Rights is given effect in, um, in law in this country by the Human Rights Act. Um, that was a piece of legislation passed in 1998. So that was <laughs> under the Blair government. Um, and in terms of its sort of institutions, it can be um, enforced domestically by our courts, but there's also a European Court of Human Rights, um, and that's that is separate to the European Union, so that doesn't go away when we uh, now we have left um, the, the EU. Um, and and the rights that they 
um, that make up ECHR are essentially the fundamental rights and freedoms which you know every um, nation, every developed nation should be giving its, its citizens and it includes your things like you know your right to life, your right to a private and family, um, private and family life to go about your business, your right to liberty um, and, and each of those is, is its own article of the, the convention. Um, and the issue we're sort of talking about today is um, how coronavirus and the subsequent dealing of it by governments. So in our case, through lockdowns, through mask mandates, through closing schools, um, engages our human rights um, and, and whether that engagement is, well, amounts to a curtailment that's um, heavy handed, that's more than is allowed in, in law. Um, and, and that's not a, a simple question to answer you know it's a, it's a sliding scale um not all these rights are absolute they can be curtailed when they need to be um you know the common example which most students would know is airport security you know it's it's a bit of an infringement on your privacy um but it, it has to happen because it's for the for the proportionate reason of preventing terrorism um so so yeah in that sense it's not quite as um I don't know, enshrined as perhaps in the States where, you know, you have these you know, things like the right to bear arms, which is absolute and cannot be, cannot be touched, it seems. Um, it's a bit more flexible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So yeah. what you're saying is there's kind of a, a constant balancing act going on with our human rights because, you know, these human rights, I mean, I forget how many, exactly how many articles there are, but it's kind of a broad balancing act across these human rights because particularly in crises these human rights must be curtailed in some fashion but it's this balancing act that you're talking about right yeah exactly uh it's, it's pretty much all um centered around this this balancing um because you have the the, the um rights of the many and the rights of the few you know as we were told at the start by um, the medical advisors the vast majority of people who get this virus will not um, die from it they might not even be seriously ill but quite a few people also will uh, and have uh, died so the, the, and these these are human rights these aren't rights of the, the well or the, the rights of the healthy or of the uh, or of the wealthy even so you know, they, they apply to everyone um, equally and, and it's that balancing which is so so tricky mm -hmm. well let's let's dive in to the kind of issues that come up as a result of lockdown because this is the harshest curtailment of human rights in a very long time certainly in our country i'm sure you i'm sure you probably agree i mean i read somewhere that this is the first time the churches have been closed since um since the 1200s for example you know even throughout throughout the plague they the doors yeah. stayed open so it's it's really unprecedented and you know i mean it's it's hard to kind of for me, definitely. I mean, re reading the article you sent to me, which was for everyone listening, was a Francis Ho article. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce the surname, but we'll include it in the description for the podcast so everyone can go and read it. It's um, a very interesting article that sets out the um, all the arguments for certain human rights being curtailed um, through lockdown. But um, if you just want to kind of um, go through his argument and your own argument as to what what questions are being thrown up by lockdown yeah sure um and and yeah i i, I do totally agree that, that this is probably you know the, the, the likes this is never before seen in terms of 
um, these coercive powers, which is what Lord Sumption called it in the Telegraph, coercive powers over, over citizens never previously attempted. Um, in terms of the arguments as a whole, um, the, the legal issues raised by coronavirus are broad. Um, they raise from everything from private contract disputes, um, you know, things like wedding contracts have been frustrated by, by this um, pandemic, can't go ahead, um, to, you know, issues of, um, that we talk about today of, of human rights. There's also the um, the virus issue. So um, in other words, the whether the government is acting within its within its, its um, defined abilities to, to bring in the, the rules that it is. Um, and not really going to deal with, with those today. It's more this sort of this niche ECHR bit because otherwise we could go on for hours. <laughs> um, so in terms of the issue that we find um, for us here, it's, it's not just whether the government has um, derogated, so moved away from these, these rights, but whether it's done it properly and whether that... Um, deviation uh, is, is, is basically is permitted. Um, and kind of the start of the argument is, is the fact that um, quite a few nations, uh, well, sort of 12 or 13 nations have, have notified um, the European Court on Human Rights, they've notified them that they, have, that they intend to derogate from the Convention on Human Rights. Um, now, the UK government hasn't done this, neither have any, many of our closest um, geographical neighbors, France haven't done it either. Um, which is interesting because it, it kind of suggests that it, by not making that notification, that the UK government doesn't feel that it meets the threshold to do so. Now, the threshold for derogating from the convention rights is that they have to threaten the life of the nation. So if the government hasn't done that, and they haven't registered that um, as they should, then that kind of makes the, the subsequent arguments fall down. And then we get on to the um, individual rights. So we've got um, Article 5, which is your right, right to liberty, um, Article 8, so your private and family life, um, your Article 11, right to assembly, to political assembly, um, and your Article 9, right to freedom of religion, um, Article 14, against the prevention of discrimination. Um, and then there are some um, subsequent articles which deal with um, things like your peace of enjoyment of property and your right to not be denied education. So there's a whole spectrum, as you can tell, of, of rights that are engaged here. And the kind of the gatekeeper question is, has the threshold been reached? It is the state in such a, in such a way that that is proportionate and then that, that should be happening in a civilised you know, Western society? Mm -hmm. So this proportionality argument comes into play when we, I mean, we were speaking before about these absolute rights that uh, are engaged within the human rights, this human rights convention, because Article 2, I believe, of the um, European Convention on Human Rights um, is the right to life, you know, the right to our existence. Um, yeah. And within some of the counter arguments for the um, for the excessive curtailment of human rights as a result of this lockdown, some people say that the right to life is effectively a prerequisite of all these other rights. So, and this comes back to this balancing act we were talking about. At what point is this right to life completely superseding all of our other rights, do you reckon? Yeah, um, and I think that's a, it's a strong argument. I mean, Article 2, is, as you say, is the right to life, and it's also pretty widely regarded as an absolute right. So um, some of the others... Um, are you know not all these rights are absolute whereas the right to life is it, it can't reasonably be 
um, Cattell. The the only other one um, I think that is quite so absolute is your right to not be tortured. Um, mm. But then you know, life in in sort of inverted commas is quite a is quite a broad term. We're not just talking about survival. You know, um, the, you know the freedom from, for example. Um, Capital punishment is quite often mentioned, but you know, life is is so much more than, than surviving, as many would agree. It's being able to make social connections, being able to further your your mind through the pursuit of education um, or religion or or, or both. Um, so, the the right to life one is an interesting argument, um, but it also comes back to this this lack of the the government to register this Article Fifteen derogation. If they, if they feel so truly that this virus uh, threatens everyone's, um, threatens the life of the nation, threatens everyone's individual right to life, then why would they not register this, this with, with, the, uh, you know, with the authority and, and say, we, we need to curtail, we need to devolve from these rights um, for the good of, uh, of everyone? Since we are a politics podcast, at the end of the day, if you if you haven't got if unless there was anything pressing that you needed to say about that, we should maybe unpack um, a couple of the specific specific rights in question. I mean, we talked earlier that we maybe like to um we'd like to unpack the right to assembly, for example, something that's certainly been curtailed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, as you say, I, I'm trying my best to not get bogged down in the sort of the, the detail of, of the law but yeah more more broadly yeah so your article 11 right to assembly is really interesting because um everyone's being told to to stay home um the the stay home kind of mantra is now actually in law it's in the the health protection regulations and then there are, that obviously includes the exceptions that you're allowed to go out for um but you know curiously in april 2020 so in that first of lockdown of course for our third now um, a German constitutional court found that lockdown laws could not lawfully curtail legitimate peaceful protests. So we're not talking about, you know, people being going and meeting as socially and calling it a protest. You know, this is a peaceful, if needs be, socially distanced protest that, that could not be limited because that is a, a fundamental right of a functioning democracy. Um, whereas in this country now, we've got... We've got um, restrictions which really seem to on the face of it contravene this so you know you remember we had the rule of six um earlier on we had sort of the the limit on on two people um that that really you know six people does not a protest make so it does really <laughs> seem that in in the spirit of legislation at least it's it's there's it doesn't make an exception for protests it doesn't want large groups of people to, to gather it would certainly seem as if you know it's at least alluding to stopping protests and we've seen you know you've probably seen the, the videos on twitter of, of various people that, that elderly woman for example that was bundled into the back of a police van for protesting outside of parliament um and it was then raised in parliament the next day by um sir charles walker mp so we ha- we are seeing protests being shut down it's not you know it's not some uh, fictional uh, idea and it's not some conspiracy it is happening yeah, I mean, we see. Post- I mean, the the lockdown process are regular, and they seem to be happening with increasing regularity. But just coming back to this, um, very interesting that Germany, the German Constitutional Court, found that um, 
um, curtailing the right to peaceful protest was illegal. So has that transferred into policy or is it merely kind of one of the things that was happened in courts and effectively stayed there? Um, so it was, again, I, I don't really have a lot of experience with um, the German legal system, but at least <laughs> in, in this country, um, if, a, if a decision is made in a court that that is then um, stare decisis, so it's then binding on future uh, future decisions. So now that the German court have ruled that this isn't allowed, if a subsequent case came up that was, you know, a protest, uh, a group of protesters uh, against the state, then they would be likely to win that because the precedent has been established, right? So in Germany, in that regard, at least in you know from reading the article, reading the case have made a commitment there to, to allowing people to, to protest. Um, but yeah, I, I say, I'm not, I don't know whether they put that into their, into their legislation. Um, it, it, they had a piece of legislation um, and the, the case said it, that legislation could not curtail um, the, the ability to protest. So possibly it was amended. Um, the, the way, uh, I understand it to work in, in, in the UK is that if a piece of law is found to not comply with ECHR, then it gets sent back to Parliament for amendment. Um, the courts issue what's called a declaration of incompatibility, you know, so that the law is not compatible with, with, with the human rights uh, requirements. We could talk about all the specific um, human rights that are being engaged with um, with this lockdown argument. Um, but I just very quickly, I was wondering your thoughts. Um, this argument for, despite the fact that, for example, the curtailment of our right to peaceful protests and our right to um, meeting with our fellows, that kind of thing, to what extent do you think that the presence of our online capabilities of being able to meet online, organise online, discuss online, um, connect with other humans and sustain relationships through online mediums, to what extent does, do you think that comes into it at all? Yes, yeah, so the online argument is um, is a really good one, which I kind of sk uh, skipped over. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, the internet and uh, you know similar systems can mitigate um, this the, the, these issues. So, you know, most obviously, especially for us as students, the internet is mitigating our lack of otherwise of access to education. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it can't go all the way because, of course, you also have your Article fourteen rights not be discriminated against. And, you know, this lockdown has, um, or all these lockdowns have really accentuated the class divide we see um, in terms of access to the internet and access to technology. So um, yes, I think the internet helps, but it, not everyone has access. And as I say, these are, these are rights for humans, not just for humans with access to a good broadband connection. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have to sometimes be careful of um, thinking that the internet is a, is a patch up for all of these issues. Um, especially when it comes to education, I think some people are really being hard done by here, and are and are truthfully being actually denied education because they they ha they don't have the provision to learn from home. Interesting. I mean, we could get into the whole argument for universal broadband, state funded, but I think we'll probably um, steer clear of that. Yeah, for possibly now. that one for another day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so in the article, this whole argument regarding proportionality. So if we were to kind of break it down your views on proportionality so lockdown is a very difficult thing to do it's a very difficult thing for people to understand i mean even the rules right now people are intensely bemused by a lot of it 
so yeah if, if we were if we were to really break down this proportionality principle and if a government were to make policy by this proportionality principle for example if the government decided okay the right to peaceful protest is an inalienable right which must be put into policy i mean we see people kind of skirting around the rule of six and the exercise rules and the hoo-ha that's come about because of that is already rampant let alone these um admittances of say peaceful protests i mean that would surely be abused so how how are we going to get to this kind of if in your view an era of proportionality because people see it as a kind of lockdown or no lockdown thing that's how media presents it but i'm, I'm sure it's more complex than that yeah i think you're right it's it, it, it there's a very binary um view and and that is also that's kind of encouraged by stories we see where you know people are criticizing all the exemptions they say if we don't lock down fully it's not effective mm-hmm. um and then you look at countries which didn't lock down at all and you see well okay you know that's a different way of doing it and that that's a, that's a question for the epidemiologists and the scientists i probably won't deal with that but in terms of how i would define proportionality um looking at it from sort of the, the legal side i would put it on the onus on the government so that any measures against people it doesn't need to be a case of oh it needs to make sense or it needs you know or it's not it needs to make sense it needs to be easy to understand like the rule of six for example or the two meter rule so the two meters was um, kind of just plucked out of thin air that's kind of a, an odd number to pick right mm-hmm. um but in terms of proportionality the way that i started looking at it um when i inside investigating this i looked at the common law test which is from a case called bank nellop um and that set out four four things which um, a curtailment of ECHR rights has to be to be proportional. Um, the author of the paper, which we're going to attach, uh, Francis Hall, he uses the um, the Syracuse principles. Now they go a bit further in that they also add um, a requirement for um, for, for the, the the legislation to be based on scientific evidence and to not be discriminatory. So that that seems like a an even more advanced kind of looking at proportionality. But to start with, kind of the slightly simpler test from Bank Mellet, um, which uh, which I looked at, you've got principally whether the objective of the measure, so the objective of the measure being you know lockdown, is sufficiently important to justify the limitation of a protected right. So you know, is the objective of preserving life from coronavirus sufficiently important to justify the limitation of your right to liberty and then you've gone to number two is that rationally connected to the objective so as long as you have evidence which shows that uh, lockdowns and mask wearing and rules of six does unequivocally lead to reduced uh, you know reduced mortality then it's rationally connected but you couldn't for example you know, have have some uh, really disjointed, um, uh, you know, rule. So you couldn't say, oh, you can't you can't discuss, um, you know, uh, coronavirus on, on on the internet. You know, you can't you can't talk about um, your opinion on vaccines, right? I mean, whatever we get into about um, whether you know whether we get into the whole vaccine thing or not the the stopping people from discussing wouldn't be rationally connected to the objective of saving lives whereas making people stay home to see less people to spread the virus less you could make that you could plausibly make that argument um number three is whether a less intrusive measure could have been used 
So this is an interesting one because you have the argument that, well, if most young people and most healthy people are going to survive this, then is shielding, so when you're only protecting the, the particularly vulnerable people, is shielding not a better, less intrusive measure? Um, and again, like I talked about at the start with airport security, you know, a metal detector is less intrusive than a strip search, right? And it achieves, you know, for, for finding weapons stuff, it achieves pretty much the same aim. Um, mm. So it's about achieving the motive uh, or achieve, achieving the, the objective in the, in the lightest touch way possible. Um, and then number four is, is about balancing the severity of the measure's effect on the rights of the person who it applies. So that is your kind of, is it, is it a reasonable infringement um, to, and, and does that rights infringement, is it disproportionate likely benefit? So that's a really interesting one, because if you look at the effect of lockdown, which has been um, the closing of schools, uh, the closing of routine medical care, um, you know, we've seen that um, detections of things like cancers have dropped massively. We've seen that people going to A&E with uh, heart attacks has dropped massively. People haven't suddenly gotten healthier in their cardiac system. These are people that are not getting the medical treatment they need. So in that case, you could argue that, that the likely benefit doesn't outweigh the, uh, the, the risks and the, and the actual curtailment in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of those, those four come from Bank Mellor, and then you've got the extra two bits from Syracuse, which is the science and the discrimination bit, which maybe we can go on to, you know, separately. Mm-hmm. For sure. So one one thing, I mean, if we kind of slightly talk, talk more about your not necessarily your personal view, but you, you, you so we talked a lot about there about you talked there about shielding, for example. Um, we have, I mean, a common lo- a common argument against lockdown is this is the secondary effects, right? So the secondary effects of lockdown, things that aren't uh, beyond are underneath the surface. So you know, you talked there about um, cancer identification. I mean, that's not the that's not the medical term, but you know what I mean. Um, these yeah. kind of things, these secondary effects of lockdown. But how how are we to form an ethical response to this pandemic when these when all of these things you're talking about are kind of um, predictive effects rather than immediate effects. So, I mean, I mean, despite what Francis Hall says in the article, I mean, the science, he claims the science remains dubious, but we have these models for our say, and we are now able to predict the amount of deaths that are going to happen due to um, not locking down, locking down. I mean, obviously the science remains uncertain, but I mean, it is surely an empirical fact that's not locking down will cause more death and that is an immediate effect of not of not acting whereas acting these effects are effectively secondary i don't know what your thoughts on that kind of from an ethical standpoint necessarily were yeah um i say it's kind of a, there's a lot to unpack there and, and I, I agree that the, the whole article um is perhaps hyperbolic in its skepticism of the science um you know i think that there are two or three schools of thought and they're all you know, pretty well um, evidence. And, you know, scientists will obviously take their view. The, the modelling um, is, is interesting because the modelling has, of course, at points turned out to be wrong. Um, but these things are happening now, right? So we, we know that more people are, are dying of, of things which they wouldn't ordinarily die of, you know, of, of stroke, of heart attack. Um, and that's not necessarily because we're closing hostels. That's because people are afraid to go out 
you know this isn't there's no law which says oh you can't go and get medical treatment in fact it's one of the exemptions but people are reluctant to do so they don't want to go to the gp because they've got a lump that they want investigating um so in, in that respect i think these things are happening right now but the ethics argument is um is an interesting one because um you have the nhs has this system called um qualies which is your quality adjusted life years and what that does essentially is uh, is it supports the argument that um, that someone who dies at ninety is is less of a of a tragedy than someone dying at nineteen. Um, now that's been said in the media by a couple of of figures, um, and they were rebuked quite intensely for it. But what I think was missed from the conversation was that this is a the quality is a system which is used every day by the Treasury by the Department of Health in uh, making decisions around public health so you know if, if you then start to bring in things like the, the huge mental health impacts we've had because of everyone being trapped at home um, and the impact on education and on routine health care and dental care i think that the the ethics argument starts to become a lot um, a lot clearer and it certainly feels a lot uh, a lot less cruel a lot less like you're kind of balancing out one life with the other because you can do both right you know you can shield people and you can still let children go to school mm. yeah I, I i guess that that's where this maybe the article of discrimination comes in because i mean with with this whole thing you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't really it's a it's it's a balancing act of um unfavorable circumstances on both sides so if we go back to the um discrimination principle i mean this article of discrimination so if if one was to not lock down for example one would be discriminating against the elderly because they are being put in a position where they are more likely to die if a virus is running rampant throughout the population but then now i mean there's certainly arguments for we are currently discriminating against students because i mean our mortality rate is minute for healthy um young individuals so i guess it's a case of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't really yeah, and I, and I think, you know, looking at the, at the, the very basic facts, you know, um, on the face of it, this is a virus with a mortality rate of that's in single single figures, you know, of around one or two percent. So when you come into the proportionality, you know, yes, this is something which is really dominating the news. And it's really and it's dominating the world and it's it's affecting people's lives. And we see that hospitals are indeed struggling. Um, but in terms of the actual the, the law on the on the issue and you know and the ethics to an extent if you were doing a sort of utilitarian weighing up then there will become a point where um the the means you know do not necessarily link to the ends so there will become a point where if we carry on with this farce of locking down and opening up again and again and again we're going to end up with more deaths from the secondary effects than we do from the primary effects the primary effect being a, a, a death from COVID. And that's not a death within 28 days of a test or however they're measuring, measuring it. That's a death, you know, directly from the virus. It, it's, it's going to, at some point, become secondary to the deaths that resulted from um, basically a shutting down of society. Sure. And, and of all the, yeah, and of, and of regular public health. Because problems, you know, problems like this don't go away. And, and also we know that people are in lockdown they're relying more on on you know things like um you know illicit substances and and they're coming into harm coming you know drinking more they're coming more close to harm that in a few years we're going to see the public health downsides of this 
Sure. Um, and, and and at that point, it, it doesn't begin. It's not. It's not quite so clear, is it? It's, it? Then it's not suddenly. Oh, there's a massive benefit of these lockdowns. It's. It gets a bit blurred. And yeah, that's no. what I think that that society will start to reevaluate whether this was all worth it. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say I. I mean, I certainly had thoughts similar to yours um, around. I mean, I can't remember exactly when the vaccine was announced. I can't, I think, well, let's say October, for example, you know, when everything seemed, you know, eternal coronavirus, we were wondering how we were going to keep locking. We we had this idea that we'd have a, an okay summer and then we would all lock down again over winter. And this was to continue indefinitely. But the final um, Syracuse principle that you were talking about was, um, was that the restrictions should be of limited duration, respectful of human dignity and subject to review. And you spoke there about your 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 view that um there was I mean in in other words, but there was no particular end in sight. Whereas surely now with lockdown currently, there is a mass vaccination vaccination program being rolled out. There is mm. there and coupled with a new um, virulent strain that's been plaguing us for the past couple of months. Um, so this of limited duration principle might come in here because surely there is a there is a kind of light at the end of the tunnel for all this. You know, we is, we're no longer kind of subjected to this view that, you know, we're going, is the, is the economy just worth it? Or do we just need to stop with all this locking down because you're, and because of the reasons you just said, because we are, because it's continuing indefinitely and it will just completely wreck the economy, which I do agree with you, obviously. There are, if the economy suffers, life suffers to an extent, but there is an end in sight. Yeah. So where does that that come into this, especially since the new strain is so virulent and there is going to be such, there is going to be an increased loss of life due to this new strain. Surely it's not worth waiting Mm -hmm. out and getting getting it sorted now and having this of, of limited duration principle come in. Yes, yeah, so the limited duration principle of the of the Syracuse um, principle um, talks about the the duration of the law. So, as you probably know, the um, original coronavirus restrictions were due for review by the Secretary of State every twenty eight days. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's talking about. Uh, in other words, as such as a time occurs that the restrictions are no longer necessary for the means for the ends they purport to achieve i.e the reduction in in death then they need to be stopped and the the reason which i purport that the (laughs) syracuse principles are engaged is because um we've been moving the goalposts right so now we're talking about okay we'll stop lockdown once everyone's vaccinated but at the start that wasn't the case we were saying we'll stop lockdown once deaths fall mm. and, and then over winter we had this introduction that, oh we'll stop lockdown when um the nhs can cope okay so we're with we're, we're constantly moving um the goalposts and um in one of the articles uh which i'll, I'll find a, a reference for it um, the author said that um you know this this amounted to the, the government unduly fettering their discretion so that, that they keep on changing the threshold um, so that they can seemingly extend this indefinitely. But even so, if we are still moving the goalpost, surely this goalpost is more finite, right? This goalpost of, because, I mean, herd immunity 
with I mean with a vaccinated population is a clear end whereas the NHS coping I mean I, I agree I think the goalposts were being moved and but they were you know they were these were infant these um, goals were recurring you know the NHS being able to cope the NHS can cope and then not cope whereas being immune to a coronavirus is an end right that is a finite goal yeah, and, and in that and in that sense, that's a, a very measurable and achievable um, threshold. So if that was if that was defined in in law, then you probably find that you know suddenly you're meeting this requirement for limited duration because everyone knows when when it stops. You know the gatekeeper question. You know, will this law apply on this date? You can reasonably work out because you know the rate people are being vaccinated. You know the population of the country. You can do some simple maths and work it out. But I think where um, the current regulations ha have issue is that they, that they are so vague and that, as you say, NHS pressure changes throughout the year. You know, we see more staff off it every winter because they're poorly. Um, if that becomes then part of the test, then you're, you're unduly keeping people um, restricted for longer than they need to be, quite frankly. Yeah, um, interesting. I mean, I've got a question that... Um you'll probably disagree with and I don't necessarily agree with it myself but the anti-lockdown protesters uh, have seemingly been kind of subsumed by this argument against totalitarianism but I wonder especially on the political right what this kind, this kind of human rights argument to what extent do you reckon this is kind of a smokescreen for individuals who might just want to prioritize the economy over excess deaths? Yeah, um, that's really interesting because um, usually the right, as you say, are the first to say that the Human Rights Act and the ECHR is is rubbish. Um, <laughs> there's been calls. There's been calls for a long time, especially post Brexit, for us to have a bill of uh, British rights, um, and those rights, most likely, if 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 the kind of the populist right got their way, would would not be very kind towards groups of people who the country don't really like. So that's you know terrorists and asylum seekers if we're being very frank about it mm -hmm. um and that is you know that's the political divide kind of exemplified what is interesting is that these these rights actually um are very useful if you are a sort of a right libertarian and um you want to um you know exercise your your right to be free um so suddenly yeah we find this really interesting um adoration that the right is showing to um, institutions like human, you know the concept of human rights um, and yeah it, 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 to that degree I suppose it is a smoke screen but then can you blame them you know we we talk so constantly about you know during Brexit you know there was a big focus on the human rights impact um, now all the time we're talking about the science and the modeling and the data can you blame um, the opponents of lockdown for fighting on the same grounds as their opponents for fighting on on grounds based upon science and upon data and upon you know law mm -hmm. um, you know they, they're kind of fighting fire with fire and their arguments to some extent do hold water mm -hmm. okay all right so let's kind of segue into some solutions let's let's turn over the rock um and see if we can hypothesize some ways out of this predicament i mean let's go with your view i mean if you have one specifically i mean how are we to balance this what's are there any particular rights that you think are inalienable and that um lockdown should should 
factor them in more? What do you reckon? Um, so I, I get kind of to, to pick a maybe a less less common answer to this question, I would say um, the right not to be denied education. Um, mm-hmm. That one doesn't seem like the most drastic, right? Because, you know, sure, you might be able to get to school, but if you can still be free and, you know, be free to assemble and practice your religion, then you're fine. But I think that, especially in the Western world, we, we place such a great emphasis on education that the lack of it and and the lack of what comes with it, you know, going to school is great for children to build social, you know, uh, understanding and relationships. Um, it's really important. And, you know, perhaps, you know, this is just kind of my, my personal view as a big fan of, you know, education and furthering one's uh, horizons. But that's something I think we've really overlooked here. Um, because especially with um, the internet, we've thought, we've thought very easily, okay, we've solved the problem. We've given everyone video lessons done. But there are some groups of people. There was an expose in the Times on Sunday um, of this family that was sort of sharing a laptop between four children. And in that case, they clearly are, those other three children at any point in time being denied the right to education. And and unfortunately, because their parents aren't key workers, there's no allowance for them in the law to go back to school. Um, and I and that really sits at um, you know doesn't sit well with me and that's kind of what started off this entire sort of I don't know not reactivism just kind of reading and interest and debate for me. Mm-hmm. So education I mean I, I, I agree with you to certain extent I think that education is the bedrock of our society I mean that's without okay. question and yeah um, you know, especially now that we were talking about, so the vaccination program is here. And I think that if we were to afford primacy to the right to education, then that should reflect vaccinate, vaccination policy. Teachers should be counted yeah, as sure. um, key workers who should be fast-tracked vaccination. So that's a, a way we could do it. So, but, so how about, oh, interesting to hear your take on freedom for religion, because, I mean, we I saw recently in an article in The Guardian suggesting that... Um, many churches are chosen to voluntarily close their doors because um, I mean, um correct me if i'm wrong but um in this sec- in this second national lockdown churches and place of worship were allowed to stay open right um for private prayer i think yeah but yeah but again that's kind of a a, a circumstance forced upon them this is when we talk about this indirect uh, effect is that sure you might be allowed to travel to, to church but if you if you have this perception that the world outside is an unsafe place to be and that by walking you know 10 minutes to the temple or to the mosque or to the church you're going to contract a, a disease which could kill you then you're going to be less likely to go but, but surely that would happen regardless of government policy sure i mean the, this this fear of going out for example would be present with it no matter what yeah, and I well, I think not necessarily because you see this sort of um, these mutating um, sort of views of people that, for example, there was never a rule that you have to wear a mask outside. There was never a rule you should wear a mask inside your own car. Yet we see people doing that, uh, mm-hmm. and that's really interesting to me because people are kind of restricting themselves further than than they need to, than is being told. They're taking it one step further. So you can see how by making a rule that says you should stay two meters away from people. That then in turn you make people think that you know other people are um, infectious and that they should avoid going out so you can see how not everything needs to be legislated to create an effect in public feeling and public opinion 
You're completely right. I mean, I've, I've, the amount of people I see when walking around Exeter, I mean, w almost one in two, I'd say, almost half of the people I see walking around Exeter High Street are wearing a mask outside. And the only, I mean, the only reason I can think of for people doing that necessarily, um, or if they're are on a walk with someone who's outside the household, but most people are by themselves. It's fascinating to see how people are taking these overly precautious measures, despite the fact that it's not government policy. Yeah, it is. And even when, um, you know, government policy changed and people were allowed to meet again, I knew quite a few people um, that said, well, we're going to stay at home still because, yes, it might be legal, but we feel safe for doing that. And again, you know, I, I have no problem with that. They were quite happy. They, you know, these, these were people by and large that had, you know, gardens, they had nice homes, they got on well with their family. They had the luxury of saying, well, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine where I am. Mm -hmm. But it, it does prove that not everything... Um, people do is legislated by the government and vice versa um, so yeah there is there is that human element there and if you create this kind of climate of um, I don't say climate of fear that sounds really sort of you know full-on but if you create that climate then people are going to do their own thing and they're going to do what they think is best to avoid catching coronavirus. So you'd say it's government policy mainly and social attitudes that are claiming that uh, are kind of portraying this climate of quote on well you disavowed this term but fear <laughs> yeah it's only because i can't think of a better word off the top of my head but yeah, yeah i mean you obviously you've got the third thing at play which is the media like you can't get away from that of course we've got we've, we've got the news every night showing you know big scary graphs going in the upward direction <laughs> um you, you know of, of course that creates a panic and you know people are all tuning in to these government briefings um mm. And yeah, at that point, perhaps, yes, that the, the end is quite uh, far apart from the original mean, which was the government legislation. But I think they are linked, at least loosely. OK, well, um, just trying to think if we had anything else that you needed to talk about, to be honest, Alfie. The, the, the solution, the how do we... How do we get... Uh, what is the... Oh, yes. Oh, the magic, yes. The magic key. <laughs> lay, lay on, mate. Um, well... Personally, I think that, and this is again, this is my opinion. This isn't. I don't. I can't find this written anywhere else by uh, people. But credit if they have, is that um, that we need a, a second uh, opinion. We need a, an opposition, if you like. We need independent advisory other than Sage. So Sage is obviously the scientific group that are currently guiding the government. Um, I think, like we have an opposition in Parliament, there is every reason um, for a, a similar thing that offers a second opinion to ministers. Um, because I think right now we have the situation where the, the science, in inverted commas, is sage's science. And advisors are meant to advise and ministers are meant to decide, as Margaret Thatcher famously said. Um, I think you need more than one advisor to do that. You, you, you need ministers being presented with a range of opinions. So what's this opposition um, going to look like? Um, this is a this is a group of people who um, you know don't necessarily agree with um, with the, the sage advice. Um, this isn't hacks or conspirators. This isn't people that aren't qualified. This would be the same standard as to enter sage. Um, you know, have, being professors of virology or epidemiology or, or wherever that may be. And, and there are these people. There are people in universities as distinguished as um, Oxford, Stanford, Cambridge that that I'm sure would be able to ready to. Uh, offer up a second opinion um, and there are groups that are kind of forming 
um, that I've read about that are forming sort of unofficially, you know, groups of, of scientists and groups of professors. But um, I think having a, a formalized one of those would, would be um, interesting and useful for strategy of, of getting us through the next sort of few years, because this isn't going to go away overnight. Um, there's been talk that we might have the same thing next winter. That it might become like the flu, that we have these strains every year. Um, and if that is the case, we need a proper long-term strategy um, for mm -hmm. the future. So, but what, what do you say to the, I mean, surely if individuals who are wanting a second opinion are, like you, are not coming to it from the point that the virus isn't dangerous necessarily. I feel like the people who are going to be wanting the second opinion are cherry uh, would be cherry picking these fringe, not necessarily fringe, but scientists that are deviating from the basically worldwide accepted narrative that lock, locking down is the most viable option for public health. I feel like people will be cherry picking these scientists but based on other, but but with the pretense of other ideas behind them, basically. So, like for example, you talk about human rights. For example, other people would talk about the economy. For example, do you not think that these mm. potentially fringe scientists are coming in and being given a platform to talk about virology from their from their own platform, but under the pretense and the guise of potentially other forces? So yeah, I mean, I, I take the point that you know everyone's got an ulterior motive, you know. In terms of in terms of mine, you know, as you say, I I think this virus is is to an extent dangerous. I believe vaccines work. I believe you should follow the law and wear a mask and stay home. You know, this is not a I'm not a fringe, um, you know, person in that in that regard. But I, I, there are some unscrupulous people about, like you say, that that don't have um, the qualifications to back up what they're saying. And of course, they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near government. But I think as we've seen in the past, that doesn't seem to be a hard and fast rule. We we we've let some remarkably unqualified people in to advise government um, and we've let some remarkably qualified people as well um, so I think it's not so much about giving people a platform I think it's about presenting a balanced argument to um, to ministers and and having them decide on on the balance of the facts I mean these are academics with careers spanning probably two or three times my lifetime um, that have been working in their fields, you know, they're not absent the necessary qualifications to give their arguments conviction. Um, but what I think is absent is is that second opinion from government decision making. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you say that, I mean, you don't necessarily say it explicitly, but your words would maybe imply that you don't necessarily think that, um, I mean, this is a hyperbolic phrase but sage is fit for purpose i mean that we need a kind of second opinion um and also to what extent i mean surely we can base our second opinion on examples from other countries maybe do you not reckon yeah of course um and I, uh, to be fair i i probably agree with you that sage isn't at the moment fit for purpose i, I wouldn't mind going on record and saying that um in why, terms of why, the other countries why, why do you think sage isn't fit for purpose well, for, for all, all the reasons mentioned previously, really, I, I think that um, science is only science with a with a control, you know, with with um, the negative alternative, right? So um, we need to have both views represented. That's a founding pillar of our of our House of Commons, right? That we have uh, an opposition. At least we have. We currently have an opposition, perhaps in name only, but we have an opposition, um, and and you know, the, the, the second opinion is needed. Um, and actually on the political point, I think that's the other thing is that we find that extraordinarily the opposition 
is supporting these government um, measures. And actually, sometimes they're saying they should go up further. There's no political mainstream uh, view apart from the 16 backbench MPs which voted against this lockdown. Um, we're giving a giving an alternative. So, yes, I think there's a really good argument for um, another scientific board. But the same probably extends to our political system. That the, the, the same uh, opposition is needed in in the common. I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised to. I mean, Labour traditionally a um, party that advocates for welfare over protecting the economy. I mean, I'm sure you weren't surprised that they were coming out in favour of a harsher lockdown, even than the Tories were. No, I wasn't. But well, I, I guess to an extent I was actually, because if this is the party for the many, not the few, then how is it allowing the, you know, the, 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 um, um, what's the word, you know, minorities in our society to be hard done by, by these, these effects, you know, um, the Labour Party has always been very good and very, very big on things like mental health and on, you know, people on low incomes, et cetera, et cetera. These are groups of people which are being really hard done by by all this, and they don't seem to be giving given a voice um, by their traditional uh, party that would normally speak up for them. It's funny how all these kind of issues are being flipped. I mean, you you're right. I mean, Labour traditionally the party advocating for greater emphasis on mental health, but it's now the Tories that have taken up the torch of mental, or well, not even necessarily the Tories, just the um kind of. Um, it is, but I think you are right that they might have an ulterior motive. I mean, sure, you know, you see a Tory MP saying, "Oh, you know, I really want to open up the country because the mental health effects." <laughs> of course, you might. You be sure, yeah. I, you like me, probably skeptical that they just want you know, business open again. Okay, fine. You know, even if that's the case, at least they're making the argument. Um, yeah. That's just totally absent in the opposition right now. Mm -hmm. Well, um, cool, man. Um, I don't know if that, I mean, did we find a solution there? Was that our, was that your solution? That's a start to the solution. Um, the, the other, I think, will come in years time and there, there will be some sort of inquiry. Um, but then, you know, I think that'll be a bit too late. Yeah, uh, well. inquiries generally happen as you know years and years into the future after the damage has been done yeah it's um, always a ritual I think, I think right yeah it is and i think right now we, we we need to kind of not necessarily take matters in our own hands but we just need to be mindful and think think of the people who are worse affected by this you know if you if we have friends and family that are particularly isolated to to try and keep in touch with them and just to try and keep people as happy and healthy as they can be in the circumstances Anyway, I second that. Well, um, thank you very much, Alfie. That was a very intriguing no and interesting conversation. Do you want to quickly uh, shout out your um, what you do for us at The Witness? Oh, yes. Um, so, so for The Witness, I uh, I do the website, or, or, I, or I do the website when it goes wrong. Um, <laughs> or whenever I can't work out what to do. It's usually ably looked after and maintained by, uh, by you, Jack. Um, and it's looking good. There's some, you know, I've been reading some of the content lately and listening to the first podcast you put out. It's, uh, it's exciting, exciting stuff. Oh, if you need web services, um, shout yourself out real quick. How would one contact you? Oh, um, just Google Alfie Carlisle. All right, sweet. Oh, thank you very much, Alfie. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. All right. Okay. So, as I said last week, uh, the witness we are. The University of Exeter's political academic journal. We are starting this podcast to add a new medium for the discussion of ideas. Um, keep listening to our podcast. I'll be 
releasing them every Thursday, every week. It won't be me every week. Um, some of our editorial team will be hosting discussions from our academic community, students and staff. So yeah, thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time.